Welcome to I Was Only Doing My Job, an Australian military history podcast. This week, I sat down with Preston Stewart and Sayer Payne of the War Stories podcast to talk about Australia's involvement in the Pacific Campaign of the Second World War. This is the second time that I've chatted with these US Army veterans, and you will know that the audio quality is different from normal as it was recorded over Zoom. This is also the first video podcast, so which is available now on our YouTube channel, which we have linked to in the show notes. So let's begin with the conversation already underway. I like with a blistering passion. I'm just going to start going, Ross. We'll just get yeah. into the intro when we get there. Yeah. Like he hated, uh, you know, non-Americans to the point where he just didn't report what these Australians were doing. I didn't know and that. that. Result, mm. it not, so he's saying that he announced Australian victories as allied American victories, even if Americans weren't even involved. Dude, that's become such an interesting little nuance when you say ally especially in the Pacific, I feel, because the allies were involved in so many different capacities that it, it's politically correct, politically correct, the right way to say it. Everything was an allied effort, but there were also yeah. things that were solely American, like only yeah. Americans landed at Terrell. Yes. But it's still an allied theater. And um, I didn't know MacArthur was just straight, not, <laughs> not mentioning the Australians. Yeah. That couldn't have gone over well. Oh, and the worst part about it is he was, in, he was basically the officer, in, you know, the commanding, commander-in-chief of the Southwest Pacific Theater. So he had total control of Australia's military operations. And yeah. he basically decided there's more Americans involved that Australia wasn't need to be involved anymore. And he'd go to the U.S., you know, Congress and be like, oh, yeah, we took this place. And it's like, you know, that's not the first victory in this theater. We've, the other things have happened before that. You know, like, oh, no, 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 no. You know, he's a polarizing figure. Him. He's polarizing in the U.S. too, MacArthur. Yeah, there's there's, there's like, people who really don't fine. like him. I I don't know. Are do people actually like him? I feel like um, people don't really. I mean, he doesn't seem to be likable. I, mean, I don't know if, if history. This is a ego thing. Because yeah, why? I know why it's ego. But why in the world would you turn away a bunch of able-bodied people willing to do the job, motivated? Yeah. Like, why would I you mean, say no to that? I don't. This doesn't make sense to me unless you're I mean, a guy the, like that that just wants yeah. the credit. I mean, the chief of the general staff, the general marshal actually goes, tells him, you're now in charge of the Southwest Pacific area of operations. So the you know, Pacific was broken into three areas. Your 90% of your combat forces are Australian. You should have Australian staff officers in your chain of command. And he goes, no, nah, I only want my Americans that I've picked from Singapore, no, sorry, from the Philippines and the Americans that are coming in from the U.S., now, he grudgingly appoints, you know, Sir Thomas Blamey, who was the highest ranked Australian officer in, in theatre as the Great Land Forces commander, but refused to let him actually have command of American troops. So he, he had to direct the battles that the Americans yeah. were involved in, and he'd order the Australians to be involved. But if Blamey wanted to do anything, he could only be with Australian troops. Hmm. The wonders of allied, of allies in war, right? Oh, yeah. So... Before we get too far here, we'll, we'll do a quick intro. Um, I'm Preston Stewart, joined by Sayer Payne for War Stories, and today we have Ross Manuel with us. Ross, uh, if you couldn't tell already, is, uh, is Australian. He's, a, he's very knowledgeable when it comes to Australian military history. I knew we were going to get into MacArthur at some point. I didn't know that's where we were going to start, but checks out. Um, anyways, the vast majority of the stuff we talk about um, on war stories has to do with the American military. It's what we know. It's what Sayer and I know. Um, it's what we're comfortable talking about, maybe is another way to put it. But we thought it'd be fun to talk to somebody like Ross, 
to hear just another perspective. It's a conflict the U.S. was involved in, um, and we learn a lot about growing up, um, but we don't learn the same depth about other countries as we do the U.S. So, Ross, a lot of pressure. Um, you're speaking for all of Australia for the last 80 years, but I think you can handle it. Thanks. Um, um, we're we're going to get back to MacArthur, but I wanted to uh, kind of just to break the ice really with like the American audience, because it's primarily Americans that are listening to this. If we were to walk down the street and grab the first random person and say, name a person, place, or thing that has to do with World War II, I feel like the most common answer would be Pearl Harbor from the American perspective. Mm. If I went to Australia, did the same thing, grabbed the first person off the street and said, tell me a thing, person, or place about World War II, what is that for Australia? What's the most common talking point, if you will? That would be Kokoda, and that's strictly from a uh, nationalistic standpoint because this is the first time since the colonial era that an Australian territory was actually attacked and invaded by a foreign aggressor. So, But it actually wasn't the start of the campaign. It was how it was been portrayed. So the Gallipoli campaign in the First World War was you know, Australia's introduction to the global stage, and Kokoda is in the same level of reverence. So the Kokoda campaign was in response to essentially the failure of the Battle of Coral Sea. Okay. So um, prior to Kokoda, Japan was almost unstoppable all the way down the South Pacific. You know, they crossed the Thai-Malayan border on the 8th of December and they just didn't stop until, you know, March 1942. 41? Yeah, what what year are we talking about here? So... um, (laughs) So Kokoda was in 42, end of, end of 42, start of 43. So okay. um, Australia had been already been at war since 1939 and you know, three quarters of our combat forces were in Europe. So the, the troops we had in theater were not great. Well, um, a, which a, meant that, a point yeah. that I should make for our audience is you guys were at war since 1939, but not with Japan. No. Yeah, so, so, with, so, so with Germany, yeah. so dealing with, with issues in Europe, but there's this aggressor on the doorstep that you're going to have to, to take on. Pretty and soon. yeah, let me interject here. So it really is. It's World War One 2.0 at this point. Right. Obviously, mainland Europe, you're one of the old school Europeans, I guess, associated with them. And so you're sending troops to the mainland, just like Canadians did, just like we did in World War One. And you but the Americans didn't send troops, obviously, with thirty nine and all these declarations of war, you're saying Australia did, you signed the line and engaged it with your own troops. Actually, well, to a degree, yes, but we never signed a line. So as a British Dominion, um, we didn't actually have a say in international politics. Though There was a, the, the Statute of Westminster, which would have given the Dominion's autonomy in the war, but we never ratified it. So when Britain declared war yeah, on the on, the, on Father's Day, 6th of, December, 6th of, 6th of September, 39, uh, after you know, Germany's invasion of Ukraine, no, Poland. Uh, <laughs> got, got current events on the mind? Yeah, invasion, of, invasion of Poland. Australia was automatically at war. Um, but oh, because of, interesting. And because of the Great Depression and uh, the effect of the First World War had on Australia, we it took, it took about till 19, mid, middle end of 1940 to actually be able to send troops overseas. And by the point, Dunkirk had happened. So our troops were sent to North Africa to defend the Suez Canal, which was essentially what we did in the First World War. So our, tr- our troops were actually occupied the same training camps that their fathers did 
20 years really? before. Mm. It's very nice, nice synergy. But the problem with that, though, is so three quarters of our com- uh, professional combat strength was in North Africa. Air Force in, it was in Europe fighting the Battle of Britain. Is that the troops that were left in Australia? Now, this is despite since 1902, Australian strategic planners going, we need to keep an eye on Japan. One, you know, only one division of, of professional soldiers, and I use professional very loosely because Australia only had 2,000 professional soldiers at the start of the war. One division was in Malaya because Britain had basically taken all of their professional soldiers back to the home islands to defend them from German aggression. Mm-hmm. It also meant that all the war material that was destined for the Dominions was also gobbled up by the British Empire, the British Army. So when the eighth, um, when the eighth division landed in Malaya, they were still training using First World War era equipment. And the only reason why they had any equipment that was modern was because the British garrison left it there. Really? And you know they would hold the land. Then they were training, but they didn't have enough artillery because the artillery planners couldn't justify the guns being used in the jungle and like. Malaya is like the 29th largest coastline. So you got mountains on one side and jungle and uh, the ocean on the other. So they would go, okay, we'll fight in the plains. We'll only fight in the plains, which is great, except for the fact that Japan had been for the better part of the, you know, the last 20 years, been perfecting all other forms of combat. They weren't afraid of the jungle, whereas the Dominion troops were. You know, so if they encountered any resistance, they just bypassed them. They'd either yeah. get in their transports and flank from behind or go through the jungle and flank from behind cut off the rear echelon, cause a, a rout with such degree is that there was no operational security. Weapon stores were being left, fuel was being left, ammunition was being left, code ciphers were being left just freely to the point where they said that of the bombs dropped in Singapore, a third of them were supplied by the Royal Air Force. Ooh. Because the Japanese would come across an air, and it basically, you know, I'm seeing, we're seeing it again now on like on the Eastern Front during the Second World War and again in Ukraine, is they're relying on their supply line, but it's been augmented by the stores being left sure. by the retreating mm. forces, or they're being impeded by the, the retreating forces destroying the stores. And in 1941, they weren't leave, they weren't you know taking any stores. The point where um, the, the Japanese forces approached a British airfield and found porridge in po- in pots in the mess hall, ready to go. Like it was still steaming. Like they, they, they knew the Japanese were coming and they're like, oh, we'll just all have breakfast. And then left all their ammunition and all of their, their, their bombs and fuel on a completely intact airstrip. Hmm. Was there, is there, was there, I should say, any animosity between Australia and the United Kingdom mainland at that point? Because it seems um, like, it seems like you are defending their interests, but they are not helping to defend yours which I understand is kind of how that relationship was, but I haven't heard much about that. So initially Australia was a dutiful member of the British empire, like all the other dominions were, um, but that's because the war was being fought in Europe and Australia's defense strategy at the time was we fight the war as far away from Australia as possible because we are the world's, you know, the largest Island and you know, continuous, you know, one of the largest continuous coastlines we have. We, at the time we had the population of New York city, so we had only had 7 million people defending the country, the size of the geographical continental United States. Yeah. And they're like, yeah, if we could, if we don't have to fight the war here, we will, we will fight it elsewhere. But since the twenties, Singapore itself was the bastion of our defensive strategy. So those who don't know, Singapore was a naval port on the south and southern tip of Malaya, which is now Malaysia. 
And it the whole strategy defended uh, intended upon is because it's strategic importance uh, all of, with all the trade routes going through that area is that any aggressor wanting to take the Southern Islands in the South Pacific and what is now Indonesia and things like that would have to go past Singapore and they have to deal with Singapore first. So the intent was we hold Singapore until the Royal Navy comes in, guns blazing and relieve the force, deal with the threat, which was great, except that the 1927 Washington Naval Treaty came through and gutted the Royal Navy, which meant that um, the Royal Navy didn't have the, man, the, the, the ships or the manpower to send a force to defend the South Pacific if they were already engaged in another theater. And the sense was they had, well, the, the garrison had to hold for eight weeks, which is the transit time from the London, from England to Singapore. Mm-hmm. By, the, by the time of, you know, the 8th of December, that was already down to, the Royal Navy said, we're not coming. <laughs> but General yeah. Percival, who was the commanding officer at the time, was like, we're going to hold the port because the Royal Navy's coming, despite him knowing that they weren't. And this caused a lot of problems with John Curtin, who was the Prime Minister of Australia, where he went to England. It's like, I want my troops home. Bring back the seventh and in the sixth and seventh and ninth divisions. I want the Royal Navy, the Royal Australian Navy back in Australian ports. And I want the Royal Australian Air Force back from Europe. And uh, Churchill's like, we can send them to Burma. And it wasn't until like Roosevelt came in and goes, no, because if Australia is defending the South Pacific, we can focus on North Africa and Europe. Mm. And that's the only reason why Churchill even acquiesced to allow the Australian troops to return. In response, one Australian division stayed in North Africa, but the rest came back mid-1942. It's crazy the amount, of, the amount of side dealings like that to where, to where things played out. I, I was wondering where we were going to get to Australia actually being able to bring their troops home. And I didn't know that, but like what a cool little piece of, of FDR giving Churchill what he wants. Fine. We'll, we'll focus on Europe first, but these boys got to go home. Like, hmm. yes, it fits perfectly into that Europe first strategy, doesn't it? Well, but, but that, how that, does that, I got to ask how that feels as an Australian when, you know, you have a prime minister that says these are, because these are all the, the sons and husbands of Australians and some guy from England won't let you get them back to defend your own area. And you have to wait for permission from an American president. Like, how does that feel as an Australian? I mean, or was it, you know, patriotism and the war for God and country? What was the sentiment like back then? I mean, obviously we weren't around back then, but it just sounds odd to me, at least in where we are today with how things go. So in the First World War, everyone was for God, country, defense, the realm. We're only like two generations removed from England. Because of the fact that one in four Australians were involved in the First World War and one in 10 died, we were no longer really so jingoistic about defending king country in the realm. It was, we're a beautiful global member of the British Empire and we'll do our bit. But there is a whole generation, my, my stepfather's of that generation, where the, the overwhelming belief was that we were abandoned by Britain. Mm-hmm. To the point where, I mean, in you know, 41, December 41, you know, Curtin goes to makes this makes the statement goes we look to america without any of the pangs of regret of our historical connection of bondship bondsmanship to england they basically realized that our our survival was purely dependent on reinforcements and supplies coming from the united states but we also knew very quickly that if those supply lines were threatened we were on our own like um britain and america had already basically decided that if australia new zealand were no longer strategically viable they weren't going to try and deal with us until they were done with europe and most Australians, military officers knew this, which is why we try to hold the line as long as possible. But 
that you know it, it was one of those those problems is um japan knew from onset that they were never going to take australia um the imperial japanese navy had victory fever and they were like oh We've been so successful so far. We, you know, the, these great British, you know, great European empires are collapsing before us. You know, we could take Australia, and the Imperial Japanese Army was just like, with what? You know, we've got to hold all of our Chinese holdings. We've got to have armies on the Russian, the Soviet border to stop them from a- attacking. We got, you know, all the all this territory we've already captured. How are we going to take Australia? So their strategy from like March of forty two was not so much occupy Australia, but basically strangle Australia by controlling all of the sea approaches, taking all the islands, taking the Solomons, taking what is now Indonesia, take, you know, well, Hawaii and Midway and all, you know, to basically force the American convoys where they would be spending more resources to get to Australia than they would actually be transporting to Australia. Mm. And that would force America to go, I don't think we can sustain this you may as well go for conditions and we'll just we'll come get you when we're done with Germany. Ross, you mentioned that Japan knew they couldn't take Australia. That sounds like a realistic view, but I've heard so many, like there were plans for, there was a plan, I should say, for Japan to take Hawaii. One of the plans was to bomb it. Another one of the plans that was rejected was to land troops and actually take it. Um, I have a feeling at some point, someplace, sometime, there was an actual plan to take Australia. It just became unrealistic. Is that hmm. accurate? I don't know. Yeah, like, yeah. yeah that, that, that is a pretty accurate. So the Imperial, so the Imperial Japanese Navy general staff got really surprised by the r- rapidity of their advance. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, we could go all the way to Australia. And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It got as far as like their equivalent to the Joint Chiefs. And the Army's like, we don't have the manpower to do this. So that's when they switched their strategy to we can gotcha. occupy these islands relatively easily. Australia is a manpower poor, resource rich country. We can starve them. We can force them to all those natural resources that we want. We can force Australia to give them to us without ever actually landing troops in Australia. But the prime minister, John Curtin, his main barrack cry for the entirety of the war was work, fight, or perish. The Japanese are on their way. They're going to invade Australia. So every man, whether they like it or not, is working on behalf of the government in defense of the government and defense of the country. So I think that yeah. was that was used in the West Coast of the United States to a degree. Be careful. The Japanese could be here. They could be on our doorstep. And, you know, comparatively, that wasn't realistic at all. You guys were. What was the, the largest Japanese base to Australia? Would it have been? It was Rabaul. Rabaul? Yeah. Yeah. So Rabaul was a British territory, which was, it was technically Australian administered, but it was a British territory. Um, and we focus a lot of our, you know, what was left of our troops on defending it and the strategic air bases around Indonesia, including sending a, what is it would be considered now a commando unit to invade neutral Portuguese Timor. We was neutral in the war. So technically we did violate the neutrality of another country to do this. Um, because there are all these airfields along what is now in Indonesia that we were a supplying Singapore for, but also we're using them to launch attacks against the Philippines, the Singapore and the island tax. So we needed to hold those airfields because the you know, Japanese came through, but Rabaul was our biggest area. So we committed something like 6,000 troops to defending Rabaul. So troops also have air, air, you know, Royal Strength Air Force squadrons, things like that. So. I mean, that's barely that 500 a, miles off your coast. Yeah. That's close. It was a, it was a, it was a it was a big deal, but even then, like you know, just we were outnumbered 
ridiculously by the Japanese forces. We as we only had about twenty thousand troops in the entirety of the Southwest Pacific, wow. who could be used in uh, outside of Australia's territorial waters at that point. Um, you know, we had eighty thousand um, militiamen, but they could only be used in Australian territorial waters. Uh, and so, these forces they they hold they try to hold their own. So the Rabaul was. Uh, real like quick, 80, yeah. who's restraining you to the territorial waters? Ah, that's the 1903 Defense Act. So basically all the British Empire dominions have their own similar defense acts. So Australia, New Zealand, Canada all have the same one where they could raise troops for home defense, but they couldn't commit these troops to offensive action overseas. Essentially to stop the dominions from creating their own empires or, you know, interfering because they couldn't have any uh, effects international you know, affairs. They didn't have sure. the ability. So it'd be like, Australia occupying, you know, the Dutch East Indies, so the Netherlands East Indies, what is now Indonesia, and then forcing Britain to go to war with the Netherlands because of it, even though Britain had nothing to do with it. Sure. So Australia had a professional army of about 2,000 troops and about 80,000 militiamen, and these people couldn't leave Australia. You had a, a volunteer for overseas service because the Defence Act said that the permanent military force and the citizens' military force can't leave Australian waters. However, volunteers can go overseas. So the Australian Imperial Force was raised in 1939, just like how it was in 1914, and it could go wherever it was needed to, but the bulk of the, it's just like the National Guard, couldn't yeah, except, leave Australia. Except the National Guard gets overridden, I think is where Sayers kind of coming at with this, is our National Guard is a state militia, and they do a, you know, it's local, and they're designed in part to help with like natural disasters, but you blink, and they're mobilized and Ross, the 29th infantry division on Omaha beach. That was national guard. Mm. Um, so they weren't exactly uh, staying within the borders of the United States. So it's interesting, the comparisons there, but um, I think there's more federal, it, more federal control, I think over uh, the national guard in the U S. Well, I mean um, it, it's different. It just comes down to autonomy and what's the definition of a colony. Right, because it's like you still have daddy controlling you. You're an independent, sovereign nation, but not really. Yeah, because if so you like, can't even dictate how your military is used and defend your own area, that's what to me is interesting. You know, you're not sovereign at that point. I, you know, you have other people across the world calling shots for you. Um, oh yeah, I mean, I mean, so like the colonies, so, so the non-dominions, they couldn't raise their own military. They were, they had to be uh, British troops had to be like, for example, Malaya, um, a strategically important location didn't have dominion status so that you couldn't have a Malayan infantry unit. You had to have a British or an Indian or a Scottish or Australian unit there almost as like a governing unit. Mm -hmm. And while Australia could send our troops anywhere within Australia or our, our territories, we couldn't take them any further until 1943. So Curtin realized because the war tempo had changed to the point where we only had about 121,000 volunteer soldiers but 232 militia militia conscripts those 232 conscripts couldn't go beyond papua new guinea and australia so he said no okay no we're changing the act and go as far as the equator so basically whereas which is where which is where australia's uh you know sphere of influence in the theater you know south pacific area ended okay um but you know but that was that that's in that's in 43 but the defense of Rabaul is so actually the, the 80th anniversary was it's coming up. I think it's like this week sometime. Um, prior to that point, though, um, the one of the first operations. So by this point, America is still holding on to the Philippines. 
Um, Britain has lost Singapore. So by Valentine's Day in 1942, Singapore has fallen. One, one quarter of Australia's combat forces gone in an instant. They become prisoners of war. So 17, put the number here. Uh, where, where is that? Put it, come back up the exact number because I wish I'm sure. You know, 14,972 Australians become prisoners of war, which equivalents wow. to 23,000 Americans who came when the Philippines fell. The difference is, is that that 14,000 were the only professional soldiers Australia had in the South Pacific at that point. Mm. So, um, Rabaul falls on the 4th of uh, February. Um, Ambon, Timor, Copion, which are all the Australian bases within the South Pacific, which were holding these airfields, fall essentially within days of this. But during the default of um, Rabaul, there's the Battle of Java Sea, which is actually one of, an interesting point because I wanted to point out, touch on because this is where, and uh, you, you might not know the story, um, HMAS Perth and the USS Houston actually fought along, actually went down with all hands fighting a protracted battle against a Japanese invasion force. So this is actually the first coalition naval force. So this was mm-hmm. what was called, was called ABCA. So the uh, Anglo-American Dutch-Australian Commonwealth Force or something oh, like right. that. It's a, Easy some to remember. Weird, it's a weird, you know, like thing. And it was actually, it was, it was all of the empires in the, in the area realizing they didn't have any localized support, you know, from their home countries we're all relying on each other right now so we'll do what we can uh whoever was the highest ranked officer was the one who was in charge but basically what happened was is um perth and houston were the only survivors of a, essentially an eight ship flotilla of british dutch australian and american warships that were basically holding the line from the japanese events they'd go out they would attack they'd come back refuel go back out on the 28th of February, so yesterday, my time, um, they were actually traveling through the Sunda Strait towards Java, which is the capital of Indonesia. It was now the capital of Indonesia. It was called, it was called Java back then. Um, basically, what happened was is that they were put into a port to refuel, rearm, and they were informed that there was a Japanese force coming at them. And they're like, we can't be caught in port. We've got to head out. So these ships were not fully fueled they only had like a dozen rounds of ammunition between them no very few training rounds very few sorry very few training rounds and things of that nature and they were like well we have to hold the, we have to stop yeah. slow this advance so at 7 p.m now american and australian naval forces not trained in night fighting we we just weren't it wasn't as, it wasn't as important as the american japanese were essentially what happened was um you know so you know, destroyers and the Japanese destroyers and cruisers were spotted off the horizon, and the Houston and Perth steamed in to engage them, and both were sunk with uh, with uh, all hand, almost all hands. Uh, they did basically. It was it was a pyrrhic. It actually wasn't a pyrrhic. It was very much a sacrificial attack to slow the advance because it was enough to slow the Jap to force the Japanese to withdraw. Six okay. of their warships had been damaged, mostly by their own torpedoes, uh, but it was enough to Wait. slow the advance. Wait, what? Did you say they mostly were damaged by their own torpedoes? The downside to fighting at night when you're only relying on star shells and spotlights is the way that the Japanese warships, because they outnumbered the Perth and Houston, they were moving around each other to try and gain dominance and they would launch their torpedoes and then you'd lose track of the torpedo and one of your own ships would fly, would, would ride into it. Um, that is the downside. The downside, yeah. So unfortunately is... Um, 
both ships were struck by, were in, I mean, just subtle scuttled by torpedoes. Both captains went down with their ships. Um, you know, of Australia, you know, the Perth's company, you know, 686 were killed, uh, which only left about, a, you know, 200 and 147 who survived as prisoners as prisoners of war, which like 80 actually, so you know, survived yeah. the war. And I think Houston mm. lost like 165 of the Houston's crew survived. That you know, like so, uh, the captain of the Houston was actually awarded the Medal of Honor for for, for this act, yeah. and it's the start of the relationship with 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 America. So Australia and America start looking at each other at this point. It's like, hey, we're we're now in this together. You know, yeah. MacArthur realizes that you know. Our support isn't coming from Pearl Harbor like we thought it was. And because of that, they go to General Percival in Singapore and be like, hey, so you're in the same boat we are. Can we help out each other out? So once that happens, though, um, these forces, you know, all, all these strains who were in these islands and in, in what is now Indonesia, almost all of them are murdered in, as in mass executions. So the Japanese, so the Australians hold the line so much where it frustrates them. So unlike taking them as prisoners of war, they're actually executed in, in mass. You know, this is one of the war crimes problems, you know, tribunals that comes out is because it's because they literally go through and, you know, something, something like 3,000 Australians in this whole area of which 2,500 of them are approximately, you know, are, are bayoneted or shot was was that upon capture by anybody like that was a standing order just kill them as you go through or is it more um thought about and intentional as in hey we're gonna you know once they've seized the land you get your pow's and you line them up and then sort of shoot them it would seem more I mean? judging by what, what what the sources and the accounts have been is that individuals who were wounded were just bayoneted on site um but once these these forces surrendered in groups, they were, you know, herded together, tied to poles, tied to trees, and then just, you know, stabbed or shot. Um, there was no real like organization to it. Um, a lot of people have you heard about? Up. Well, it does. That actually makes me now think of a point I do I am aware of, and I don't know if this happened in this particular instance, but I do know that this was a Japanese. Um, procedure that they would do um, with the bayoneting. I know that, and they because they did this to Americans in the Pacific, where uh, what they would do with this pole and the bayonet that you're talking about. And I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but they would um, take a prisoner of war, they blindfold him, they put him up against, you know, tie him to a pole, and they put a, a red target over the heart and vitals. And it's to not stab there. And what they do is they take kind of their squeamish ones, you know, the conscripted, not everybody's bloodthirsty, mm. not everybody wants to be there, but they're there regardless. And you got to make them a killer. And so they would take some of these kids, they're all kids, right? Young conscripts, they all are on all sides and um, the squeamish ones, and they would make them go first. So you're sadistic guy. You don't care. Like he's fine. We know mm. that he's going to chop heads off and ruthless, um, but they would, essentially that red, the vital area is don't stab there. And so right. stick them. And so they scream and, you know, they want the live uh, prisoner as, as long as they can, because they're running them through all, you know, cause then number two goes and then number three goes, number four goes um, just essentially bayoneting a live person who can't do anything about it. And that did happen. Um, 
<clears throat> in fact, the only survivors that we have from these massacres who were able to report about it at the end of the war were the ones who played dead after being stabbed in the side or in, in, in you know, sure. in the, in the upper chest who, who missed the vital areas. And there's um, the most poignant one of these is the Toll Plantation Massacre, where the second 12th General Hospital, sorry, the second 10th General Hospital, were they were holding, you know, they, they were doing what, what doctors would do under the Geneva Convention, where we're, high, we're, we're staying behind, look after the wounded. And what happened was, is that Japanese who weren't signatories to the Geneva Convention, you know, the Red Cross armband meant nothing to them. They rounded up the entirety of the second tenth, all the orderlies and things like that. Uh, the doctors they kept because they they found the, they knew the importance of doctors, but the orderlies they will basically took them to what you know the toll plantation, trussed them up, tied them up to you know poles, or made them sit on their knees blindfolded, and they would be bayoneted or they'd be machine gunned or whatever. And you know of like mm. there's like forty of the toll of the the, the orderlies four would survive the war and they were just ones who either weren't present for the massacre and the one of them actually was a survivor who, who played dead um that kind of thing happened all the time but despite all this you know the horrific tragedy not all the Australians who's well not all the ones who were there surrendered uh in fact the second second independent company which is essentially what we call commandos now led a guerrilla war in what is now Timor-Leste until 1943. So they were able to continue to cause havoc and wreck, wreck shit in the, you know, in the Japanese controlled areas up until 1943. And what the same thing happened was Australia launched, uh, deployed a lot of coast watchers, uh, plantation owners, dock workers, native fishermen to basically watch the coast and keep track of Japanese troop movements. Because while radar was a thing, because of the way the islands exist and all the vast, vast expanses of nothing, you can't put, you'd have to put your radar units in Japanese controlled territory. And their job was to report back to Australia, Japanese troop movements, Japanese aircraft movements, Japanese, you know, ship movements. And these guys, the coast watchers are actually the ones who gave everyone the heads up on the battle of the Coral Sea and the battle of later Gulf and the battle of Guadalcanal. They warned, you know, the, the, the Americans and the Australians that, oh, you know, the, there's a Japanese force coming and which, which allowed us to go out and engage them. But do you know, you to- know the um, as this is going on? Well, yeah, my comment on that is the invaders are never going to have the situational awareness that the defenders have. Mm. They, they're always watching. Uh, and you're talking counterinsurgency. Um, but the the atrocities, right, this the bayonet, the take no prisoners um, thing that's happening is that making it back to mainland Australia back then? Are people aware of what is going on? Not initially. So what they hear, what they're thinking is, is that, uh, for example, like when Singapore fell, um, everyone who, of the, you know, the, how much did I say? It was the, what's that right here? The 14,000 Australians in prison, they didn't know, Australians didn't know what happened to them. They'd contact the Red Cross and the Red Cross would contact Japan and mm-hmm. Japan would be like, yeah, what of it? Like, you would on you're on the opinion of like well we haven't heard from them so we hope they're a prisoner of war um you know sadly the australia's largest naval disaster during the war was the sinking of the montevideo maru which is a japanese transport ship which was taking essentially survivors from these islands back to mainland japan to work in the mines and sadly the montevideo maru was sunk by the uss sturgeon because japan wasn't labeling their prisoner of war transports as prisoner of war transports as red cross 
you know, like what the Allies were doing, you know, all the German and Italian and Japanese prisoners were taken back on ships with massive Red Cross signs like, hey, don't sink this, non-combatants. Japan were putting their prisoners of war in essentially cargo ships and sending them up along the coast and doing nothing to, you know, anything. So like something like 2,000 Australians, military and civilians were just killed when the sturgeon sank it, because the sturgeon, oh, it, it's, it's, it's a legitimate target. It's a, it's a, it's a transport. We're, we're at war. The Japanese rescue the 149 Japanese sailors who are on the Montevideo Maru and watched as the ship sank with the 2000 Australians on board. <clears throat> the report saying that apparently the Australians were singing old land Zine and things like that as the ship was going down to keep each other calm. But those who managed to get 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 um, out of out of the ship were left there, which tells you exactly what the extent the extent of the Australians' uh, experience was. But that being said, there were the occasional Australian who managed to get out. So all these units that were overrun, some got back to Australia. They reported back. The most controversial one of this was General Bennett, who was the commanding officer of the Eighth Division. He managed to escape the fall of Singapore despite the fact that General Percival said that we will defend the, you know, Singapore to the last man and the last bullet. Granted, he did say that, then surrendered four days later. But General Bennett realised he needed to let the Australian government military know what it was like to fight the Japanese. Mm-hmm. But because he abandoned his post, there was a you know, board of inquiry. They, they, they grilled him on it. He never hold, held it. You know, he was retroactively promoted and then never hold, held another post in the war. Very much like how General King... Like to Admiral King and you know the Pearl Harbor defenders were like promoted and then moved away slightly. They needed someone to blame, but Bennett was not the one to blame. Uh, so th- they there were the occasional rumblings. Uh, they never got to the public. The military had their like um, the British Australian officials knew about the atrocities the Japanese were happening because like the fall of Hong Kong, the fall of Malaya, fall of Singapore, the Bank Island massacre, the Tolton. They weren't knowing about the specifics, but they were hearing these like. You know, they also were seeing what's happening in China with the, yeah. you know, the rape of Nanking and, yeah. the, you know, the, and Manchuria. They're like, they're doing this to their own, again, using terminology of the time, doing it to their own Asian cousins. What are they going to do to the white man? And that was, you know, this prevailing opinion of, you know, well, they're going to do it, you know, because Japan wanted what, what was called the Japanese co-prosperity sphere. Oh, sorry, Japanese economic co-prosperity sphere. Was their cute name for empire building? Um, and they were brutal to anyone who collaborated with the, with their colonial superior, you know, in, you know, overlords. Uh, they were brutal to the European landowners, things like that. We got we heard about that. But when Java fell, you know, the third, the twelfth of March, forty two, that was when things went weird. You know, the, we, we we had the whole period of like essentially till midway through forty two. Um, that's it. Because on the 14th of 19th of February, 242 carrier-based aircraft and land-based aircraft from all the air bases that they had captured in Indonesia bombed Darwin. And more bombs were dropped on Darwin than were dropped on Pearl Harbor. And Darwin in itself, I mean, I do feel sorry. I do apologize to people who might who who listen to base who live in Darwin. Darwin's strategic importance is that it is an airfield and a deep water port on the northern coast of Australia, which is great to launch, you know, to deploy troops into Indonesia and Papua New Guinea. Its strategic value elsewhere is negligible. It's too far away from Indonesia, from Darwin to any other major city 
to use it as an airfield to attack other Australian territories, Australian cities. And it's too far away from any other built up population area to land troops there to lose as a, you know, staging ground beachhead for an attack. Japan knew this. It's 2000 miles across land to Sydney. 2000 miles. And it's not like 2000 miles across like, you know, the continental United States where it's all sweeping plains and, and, you know, valleys and things. It's desert. It is nothing but in it's actually is uh, the badlands. Nothing for you know two thousand miles from Darwin to the nearest population center, and you have to bring your own water. You have to bring your own food. The local pop, local indigenous fauna will kill you. You know there's not enough raw materials to make the you know the, to build shelters. You have to bring everything with you, and all you're doing this. There are fortress fortress locations around the coast of Australia who can bomb you. And, you know, the indigenous population will, you know, not co- collaborate with you and things like this. So well, Darwin... To- to- totally hypothetical, well into that realm. Is that the kind of march across central Australia that would destroy an army? Like if Japan yes. landed, it's that kind of, they get to Sydney with like 16 people and surrender kind of thing? Pretty much. So your strategic importance of, of Darwin is that it's where your uh, aggressor is coming from. So if you deny Darwin, it's, you know, Darwin's use in the war, it's, it's more strategically important that way than actually to occupy it. Uh, because all the Australian troops or the American troops that, and all the you know, Dutch and British aircraft that are attacking your holdings in the South Pacific are coming from Darwin or from Townsville. But essentially they, they continually bomb Darwin, it becomes one of the most bombed cities in the world during the Second World War. Uh, and, and the reason for that is because this is the entryway into Indonesia from Australia. Um, and, you know, it's one of those things. And one of the only reason why they, Japan stopped bombing it is because we forced their airfields too far back in 1943. So um, from fe- February until April 1943, Darwin is bombed almost daily by the Japanese because Australia and America are building Darwin up. They're building airfields. They're reinforcing the port there. They're building barracks. They're building you know, supply depots, training centers, all these things. It's creating a fortress town. For the was that the, is, yeah. Ross, was that the main hub whenever I hear? So when you hear about an American operation in the Pacific, they might say refueled in Australia or staged in Australia. Are they usually talking about Darwin? Is that yes. pretty? Okay. So the British, so the American headquarters was in Brisbane. Um, you might occasionally might hear them refer to Townsville, which was actually Australia's only fortress city. Uh, but Darwin, if you're attacking from the South Pacific North or Fremantle and West Australia, if you're attacking the Indian, into the Indian Ocean, um, because Darwin is a, is a massive deep water port. That's It's the economic hub of the North, north of Australia is all the cargo ships coming from Darwin and things like that. Um, so it becomes one of the most fortified places in Australia, but it's still strategically far away where Australians are hearing about the attack on Darwin, which is, again, leading to the, the, the fears of Australia is going to be invaded by Japan. What also happens is, in order to cover for the Battle of Midway, is Sydney Harbour is attacked. So uh, three Japanese midget submarines actually come into Sydney Harbour and raid um, the harbor. The problem is they're using, and I'm going to butcher this, three Kaiohatashi class midget submarines, which are coastal raiding submarines. They've grew too, but they're ridiculously, you know, for their size, they're ridiculously. You know, when you think of midget submarine, you're not thinking something that is three, you know, three times the size of a torpedo. 
didn't Did have get, the Did you say they got into the Sydney Harbor? It wasn't yes. just the coast. They actually went went in a little bit. That's crazy. They went into the harbor. Because unfortunately, um, what's not unfortunately is Australia was very much like um, California at the time. There wasn't a lot of um, concern be, below Brisbane of the Japanese you know, can't come this far because they haven't, they haven't taken the islands around it. So there was no light no blackout protocol in, in effect. You know, um, the Manly ferry was still running, which is how the Japanese subs got in. They followed the ferry through the subnets into the Harbor, um, you know, Luna park, you know, like Luna park was like a, a big, th- uh, um, like a theme park was still running with all the lights from the amusements, like, like, like Coney Island kind of a thing. And they they, they 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 flew over they had a float plane flew over Sydney Harbour completely unopposed. They're like, okay, yep, there's there's American battleships and you know things in Sydney Harbour. We'll go in, we'll sink them, and it'll cause cause havoc. A lot of people have tried to just justify why the attack happened. You know, things like, oh, they want to attack Sydney Harbour, render it useless as a port. Others were it was just a terror raid to cause fear amongst the population. In reality, it was just a to distract from the midway attack to make American planners think that an attack was coming in the South Pacific, like maybe New Caledonia or New mm-hmm. Zealand or you know a land in a, a seaborne landing of some a part of Australia. Um, in reality, it was just to justify the existence of the midget submarine. It had a abysmal service history. One of them was present during the raid on you know, the attack on Pearl Harbor. That was the sub that was sunk. Yeah, within hours of the you know of the attack, that was a midget submarine. There was one at Rabaul. There was one at Diego, uh, um, Diego Montoya, I think it was. They were useless, but no one had ever actually encountered one. So that raid on Sydney Harbour, while devastating and was great for war, war you know, motivation by Curtin, it's like, see, Sydney Harbour, we've been attacked. See, remind you, we're at war. The only casualties were 20, 22 Australian sailors who were you know, billeted to a, on a ferry including survivors from the sinking of the, of the HM, you know, HMS Prince of, Prince of Wales and Repulse, from the, which was sunk at Singapore, and all three Japanese sailors who were involved in, in the raid. There was no strategic, nothing of strategic value was lost. They, the battleships that they saw was a freighter and the USS Chicago, and they fired the torpedoes and they hit the seawall. They exploded under the ferry and that was it. And that was, yeah, it was, it didn't prove anything, but it did great for like motivating the Australians to fight in the war again. Do you think it had a little bit of, so the morale building, maybe no strategic importance on the American side is the Doolittle raid, right? After Pearl Harbor, they figure out how to get uh, bombers off carriers and they hit Tokyo. Nothing material damaged, but we got to say, we, the United States got to say, we hit Japan. We bombed mainland Japan. Do you think that was, um, in Japan's mind, maybe a little bit of that to be able to say, hey, even Sydney's in reach. It, it might have been, but from what I've been able to determine, it's it was more just to, to the Jap- the Imperial Japanese able like, this sub we built is-, is <laughs> We got to use is, it. <laughs> we got to use it. It's horrible. Um, if we can defl- force, I mean, American naval units to stay in the South Pacific, like we've got the Lexington and things like that. You know, America, Japan is concerned by how many submarine uh, aircraft carriers America has. If we can keep, an American aircraft carrier in the South Pacific it denies them being used in the attack on Midway. Um, that's more what they see it as, less than a, an actual um, important thing. The downside of that is, um, so basically 
by this point, Douglas, you know, midway, so Philippines have fallen. They fell in December, 40, December of 42. Douglas MacArthur makes his way out of, uh, you know, there, out of, out of, out of, he's smuggled out on PT boat, and then on B-17, he lands in Darwin, takes the train immediately to Melbourne, does a press conference where he declares, I will return, and immediately oh, okay. is appointed the commander-in-chief of the South of Pacific Area of Operations and essentially the direct commander of the Australian military forces, and then refuses to appoint any Australians to his high, any of his high command positions, despite having two thirds of his combat forces being Australian. And at that point, um, what happens is is it becomes popular. You know, in March is the popular campaign. This is interesting. So it's coming all the way back to uh, what we started talking about with MacArthur. But one of the reasons always pointed to with Eisenhower being chosen to lead in the European theater is his ability to get along well with others. It's going yeah. to be a team effort, whether you like it or not. And Eisenhower was a team builder. And it's, it's funny hearing, I'm by no stretch a MacArthur expert, um, but it is funny hearing more and more that that wasn't maybe his strong suit, especially across countries, uh, country lines. And the worst part about MacArthur was, is that he was very much, uh, if there aren't, isn't, if there isn't a body count, you weren't being successful. So in March, so let's see what happens. So mid-1943, um, that's when there's sufficient US troops to take over. But in four, March of 42, um, Japanese land troops in New Guinea because they wanted to try and take Port Moresby, which is the essentially opposite port to Darwin. We take Port Moresby, we're denying New Guinea from Australia. We can then attack Darwin, deny it as an as, asset. The Battle of the Coral Sea happens. That thwarts that whole campaign. Japan then goes, okay, we'll go overland then. They land on the north in what is New Guinea, so Papua. So Papua and New Guinea is actually two different countries. They, they became one country in the 70s. But the Dominion of Papua, and then there's the Dominion of New Guinea. So they came, no, sorry, no, New Guinea, then Papua. So they land in New Guinea, and they go, they go Ground over troops. The, uh, sorry? Ground troops. Ground troops. Yes. Yep. This is the first time since 1788 that an Australian territory was invaded by a foreign power. So... Following the Second World, First World War, Australia was given dominionship of Papua and New Guinea. So New Guinea was a German territory, which was given to Australia. Australia already had Papua. That's a whole different mm. story. <laughs> sure. But this is the first time Australia... So, this, so Australia is... The, the propaganda you know, machine is running rampant here. It's like, Australia has been invaded. We are holding a line against the Japanese in our Australian territory. Yeah. For the first sure. time in Australian history, Australian troops are holding the... You know, that kind of thing. Um, the, so on the 8th and 9th of May, that's the Battle of Coral Sea. Um, on the 22nd of July, they land in, in New Guinea and they go over the Owen Stanley Range, which is a mountain range that runs across the transverse direction of the continent of the island. And they get far to Kokoda, which actually is the furthest point of essentially a, not administered, but developed territory in the area. And where is where is Kokoda on the on the map? I got the map up. I'm looking at here. Uh, it's it's almost halfway ish. It's you, you probably have to look, look for Kokoda itself. Uh, it's there's yeah. It's one of those like tiny little tiny little pinprick that you probably doesn't even come up on a, like a fully zoomed out map. Um, but it had an airfield, which is why it was important. So a very hastily organized militia force because there were no Australian Imperial Force professional soldiers anymore. So the militia unit was called Marupa Force was essentially forced forward to Kokoda. It's like 
force march up the Kokoda Trail or track, depending on what country you're from, up for uh, up this basically hand carved, hand over hand over hand track with logs and you know log log wood crossings, no bridges, no organized roads or anything. Make your way up to up to Kokoda, hold the Japanese there because we saw the Jap- Australian and American aircraft saw the landing. They attacked it, but not much was could be done to stop it. I'm, I'm going to be honest, Ross. We might not get past Kokoda because I think this is such a fascinating battle, just the little parts I've heard. But what is that track being used for? So, Juan, be clear. Track, is that Australian? And trail is American? Is that yes. or, that's, that's the difference there? Okay. Yeah. Um, so, mm. uh, officially, the battle record is trail. So the battle honor is trail. Um, the unit, the, on the, on the service medal, your service, your theater pin is Kokoda trail, um, to the Australian veteran and the Australian person, it will always be the track. What was it being used for? Was this just indigenous peoples traveling? Effectively. Yeah. It it, it was because the jungle in in Papua New Guinea is almost impossible. Um, there's a reason why. Australia or both Australian armored divisions stayed in Australia. They were like, you, you couldn't put anything larger than a Jeep. And even that you could only go so far up the island, up the Kokoda trail before you just, you, you just had to, everything had to be man portable. So Australia was converted, you know, had converted 25 pounder any, you know, howitzers. So that's an 86 millimeter gun to be man portable. Ouch. So it, yeah, so, so they, they literally were breaking these things down and everything that had to be carried by porters, by animals, or by the soldiers themselves. So mm. you're transporting everything up. Um, essentially was, they had they tried to hold the line. The problem is, you know, at the time, the militia had the opinion they were referred to as chocos. Uh, reference Cho- to chocolate. Cho- can you chocos. spell that? Oh, chocos, like chocolate. Yeah, yeah. They were referred to as chocos or chocolate soldiers because the argument was they were either too young or too old for offer to volunteer for the Australian Imperial Force. So their belief was that they would be incapable in battle. They would melt in the fa- in the heat of battle. Oh. <laughs> so this is the this is the rivalry between the Australian Imperial Force and the citizens military force is that well, you know, we're the cream of the Australian soldiery. We are, you know, we're the poster boys for Australians. And you're our dad. Yep. Gotcha. Noted. <laughs> kind of like how like don't pick a fight with a CB because you might be making fun of a Marine's father. So Chaco is not like <laughs> so Chaco is not a uh, term of endearment. Uh, or at least no, it wasn't at the time. Okay. No, but that being said, it was the militia who held the line against the Japanese. And actually, and I'm going to deviate a little bit this because the 7th Division from North Africa starts arriving around this point. They, they resupply in Australia, change their dark brown uniforms to green uniforms and go from Darwin to Port Moresby. But there's another battle that happens at the same point, which actually is the first actual defeat of Japan on land. And it's the Battle of Milne Bay. The one that I actually think people should be more aware of than the actual, um, than Kokoda, but because of Kokoda being, you know, the, the Herculean effort of holding the line from the Japanese. The Battle of Milne Bay was essentially was to take airfields to the, to the southeast of Port Moresby, which were being used to support the Kokoda landings, Kokoda operation. And the Battle of Milne Bay is the first time where the Japanese were actually driven into the sea. I know... Mm. Some Marines helped, you know, repulse the attack on Guam back in December of 41. But this was the first time when an actual full Japanese invasion force had to, with their tail between their legs, scamper back aboard the destroyers to get really? back to leave. They like, you know, it, it was something like 20, you know, 
two, two and a half thousand. Um, it was some, you know, we outnumbered the Japanese, but these were militia, all militiamen. They were, they were like, these were the, the poorly trained, poorly equipped, you know, grandfathers and, you know, 16 year old boys basically held the line on these airfields and destroyed this Japanese invasion force. They destroyed the transports. They destroyed the barges. You know, they forced, you know, they, they, they basically forced them back. And there's these famous lines outside the airfield number three, which says, this is the furthest of the Jap advance. And here lies eight and a half thousand dead Jap Marines. So it wasn't like the you Japanese know, army. These were elite Japanese Marines. But again, I know we're talking militias and, and elite Japanese forces and they're tough and violent and undefeated at this point. But just I still think the lesson is never discount the defenders of their oh, yeah. land against an invader. I mean, we're seeing it. It seems like the stuff going on in Ukraine, most a lot of it's militia based. You know, it's not. And it will continue that as the convention. I'm sure flags will lower and flags will raise, but if the militia and the people stay fighting, it's just tough to defend against. And um, that's why I was asking about that propaganda. Not the propaganda, but just the news of the actual events of what's going on with the prisoners. And, um, well, like you said, hey, the attack on Sydney, that's all going to fuel the motivation and that fighting spirit. But, you know, like the actual Battle of Milan Bay, is touted it is massive pro- propaganda victory for the allies and they put it out mm. you know it's like oh, yeah, we've had captured Milan bay so all, all throughout the british empire you know like you know the you know the british territory Australia. so we've defeated the japanese we've, we've, we've pushed them out of Milan bay and macarthur's gone back to america and gone there was an allied american attack that we repulsed the japanese completely downplayed the australian involvement and oh. that was coupled by what happened in on kokoda is what the Australians were doing, they, they, they had some experience from, uh, you know, General Bennett. He did pass on some knowledge about how the Japanese would, would flank and bypass. Is that on Kokoda, if the Australian units were afraid that were close to being, over, being flanked, they would withdraw. They wouldn't hold and, you know, be overrun. They would say, oh, no, the Japanese attack is, 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 is withering. It's, they're, they're, they're appearing to, we can see them flanking. Okay, we'll, we'll pull back. And then they would, would pull back to a more defensive location. And then they yeah. would Japanese come through and they would do it again. What MacArthur was yeah, seeing yeah. is Australians were giving up ground, but not blooding for it. And he meant that Australians were lacking resolve and like, oh, they're not even defending their own, their own territory. So why is like, yeah, because we don't, we only have so many troops. We don't want to lose them. Yeah. And well, so he orders- and not unlike the very same thing we as Americans did fighting for independence against the Redcoats. Yeah. Well, you know, They've got the structure and the rules and, and the rank and file. And again, when you're the defender, you pick and choose the battles. Well, exactly. not always, but, you know, um, that's just, a, yeah. It, it's, it's disheartening to hear that they didn't get the credit. Um, and the worst part about it is MacArthur orders general blaming. So he doesn't even want to get directly involved in this. So he orders the Australian Land Forces commander to go, strip the brigade commanders of their positions appoint new troops i want i want i want to see blood i want to see casualty reports you're gonna you know if you want to hold your line i want to see this so blamey has and this is one of the um, problems with, with general blamey is that he's now been smeared with this whole he's gone to the australian commanders you know, said, and it basically gave the under the orders from macarthur to give a dressing down to the australians which is to the effect of you're all cowards you aren't fighting you know, you don't deserve to be here. You're, you know, and, and, and he hates this. And he, you know, memoirs, he hates this, but it's influenced opinion so poorly 
that the Australian soldiers hate blaming. You know, they, they blame him entirely for this. Mm-hmm. But the other advantage of withdrawing along the Yarmouth Stanley Ranges is the same thing happened in North Africa. The Japanese supply line now has to be ported by, by hand over from the Japanese supply line, the Japanese landing sites at Samalau and Wei, up the Yarmouth Stanley Ranges to Kokoda and then down the Kokoda Trail to within, they can see the lights of Port Moresby. But the problem is, is that Australian and American aircraft are attacking the landing sites. Like we can't attack them. We can't push them off the, you know, off the, off the island. They've fortified that. That's okay. American submarines are attacking the transport ships that are bringing in the supplies and reinforcements. And the Australian and American aircraft are bombing the, the, the bombing the, the track daily, very much the way what like in Vietnam with the bombing of the Ho Chi Minh trail, it's like we're, we're starving you of resources to the point where Japan's like, we can't push any further. We've, ex- we've gone well, the furthest we can go. It sounds like the reverse of how it started then. Yes. With Japan having the foothold, doing those same attacks against the allies. Exactly. So this is so the, the Kokoda Troll. It's the reason why Kokoda is so important is it actually does mark the turning point in the um, Japanese war. So Battle of Midway seals the fate of the... Central Pacific Japanese advance, they go no further. Kokoda is the same for the South Pacific. And from this point on, Japan will be on the defensive. It will be pushed back even further um, to the point where, you know, no, so November of 42 uh, comes to an end. In, so in March to November, so it's an eight month conflict. Ironically, same length of time as the Gallipoli campaign. Which is why another way why we draw great big parallels in Australia. Australia Gallipoli was a giant defeat for Australia, which was you know, and, and technically, Kokoda was a fighting withdrawal that just turned it advantageous for us. Sure. Um, but by that point, Japan had so few resources because they were also dealing with the Battle of Guadalcanal at the same time, so they couldn't devote forces. And by this point, basically, they realized with the Guadalcanal. And before we go, I want to touch about that, that a little bit uh, after the Battle of Guadalcanal. And the Kokoda, Japan realizes, okay, we are gonna, we've drawn a line now. Everything west of this line, we are going to hold with with force. Everything east of this line just has to delay the advance. So is that when they is that when they withdrew from Guadalcanal that time frame? Yeah. Um, So basically, the reason why I mentioned Guadalcanal is because uh, the Coast Watchers and the Royal Australian Navy were very efficient. No, not efficient. um, impactful in the battle of Guadalcanal. So the coast watchers and the Solomon islands were watching the Japanese buildup of the airfields on Guadalcanal and the, how they were working on the ports and everything in Guadalcanal. They report back to Australia to MacArthur. It's like the Japanese are building up Guadalcanal. This will directly uh, threaten the supply lines to Australia. And therefore the battle of Guadalcanal happens. And I'm not going to explain to you guys how the battle of Guadalcanal happens, but one thing does happen though, is an interesting point is HMAS Canberra, which was an Australian heavy cruiser, was in command of the force on the Battle of Iron Bottom Sound. It's a battle, a battle, of, the Sun, the battle of the Sunder Strait. The Canberra was the, the ship that was appointed as the, the flagship of that particular area. And sadly, the commander of the, um, commander of the, 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 commander of the HMAS Canberra was vilified for, how did you let the, the, the Japanese force come through? And you remember, there were only like, what six US cruisers and and Sydney, you know, like in camera holding that position against you know Japanese battleships and things like that. But it, it was impactful in the fact that uh, it's actually the first time that an American warship is named after an Australian 
after a foreign power. So shortly after the sinking of HMAS Canberra, the United States launched the United the USS Canberra. Oh, cool. And there's, there's been a USS mm. Canberra in the fleet ever since because of, mm. even though the commander of the Canberra was vilified, Canberra itself held on much like it was torpedoed several times. It took massive damage, but it was enough to have the Japanese reconsider pushing into the, into the Sunda Strait. Um, which is why I, I want to point that one out. Um, but all this, all these, all these factors take factor into pushing the Japanese back. They, they draw that line and they start withdrawing their main garrison forces beyond leaving token states to hold the line, digitally harass, which brings us to 1943, which is where essentially everything changes. Australia's involvement in the war actually starts to diminish by this point because the Ministry of Tempo of the war outpaces our ability to actually sustain it. Same thing happened in the First World War. When you only got, when one seventh of your population is directly involved in the war effort, you don't have a lot of men left to support it. And as we are a resource rich, manpower poor country, we're producing iron ore and food and grain and munitions, but we don't have enough men to actually build those things. But the, so basically, after Kokoda is taken, the next, next point is the Samalau well, Way ATAP campaign, which is the t- taking of German New Guinea. Australian forces are pushed through. Now, these are simultaneous attacks. So these aren't, this isn't a coordinated uh, coalition force. This is an American offensive and an Australian offensive with identical objectives. So there's no universal, there's no like joint command of the operation is like the Australians will go this way, the Americans will go this way and we'll meet at uh, Salmalau. Wait, this probably you... goes to MacArthur not playing ball with other people. Exactly. You mean like, they're, sorry, their objectives were exactly the same as in if it was an airfield, both forces were tasked with taking the airfield? Yeah. Oh, that's so not, straight, like, that not that coordinated. Well. That doesn't go well. No. So basically the objective was the American and Australian forces were ordered to capture Samalau and Ley, and but the, the Australians would go along the coast and the Americans would go inland. And whoever got there first took him. Ended up being mm. Australia took both. Uh, they took they captured Samalau on the, the 11th of September and Ley on the 15th. But as you are both members of the 101st, hey. I want to touch on this one because this is this this is in 1943. Okay, 1943. How long? So, no, have either of you done parachute training? Both of us, how long yep. did it take you to how long did it take you to do parachute training? Well, it takes three weeks, but realistically, we could probably knock that out in two days. Yeah. Did I, okay. Yeah, a couple days. And you're an artilleryman. I am. Yep. Okay. So the 503rd Parachute Infantry Regiment was tasked to take the uh, the airfield of Nasdaq, which would reinforce the attack on on Samalau. So this is after the the Sicily air, air drops, mm-hmm. but before Normandy. Sure. So Samalau. So, so the 503rd uh, Parachute Infantry Regiment is to, is to secure the operation, but there is no artillery available. So what happens is is that the second second field artillery regiment. Is patted on the on the shoulder and goes. You have ten days. Select thirty-two men and two guns. You're jumping out of airplanes. All the right. Only I need to caveat that it takes two days to learn how to fall out of an airplane as an individual. The process <laughs> of rigging howitzers and ammunition and getting an, an airborne artillery unit out of the ground—that's no joke. Ten, ten days. days is short. And <laughs> just linking up on the ground and doing all that stuff after the fact is its own animal. Not just in falling fact, out of the airplane. 
the, 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 the so the gunners they, they do one jump into Nasdaq. They don't jump prior to that, to, so they don't learn how to how to don't jump with their guns until they jump at Nasdaq. All so right, what happens there we is, go. is that the you know the the these, so these two twenty five pounders and the thirty two gunners they jump in in support of the five hundred third. What basically what you'd expect happens? The gunners jump out first. The guns are pushed behind them. Again, these are pack houses, so they're, they're designed to be broken up into components, put back together again. Takes three days to rebuild one of the guns, and the other gun is put together within three hours. So one gun to support the whole operation. They and unfortunately, the whole plan was to take this airfield, which hadn't been used in over a year, so it'd been overgrown. So some bright spark thought, let's use fire. And let's burn all the grass off the airfield to allow the rest of the regiment to come in via aircraft and the rest of the, the seventh division to come in and do it. Doing so destroys a lot of the stores that got lost in the tall grass. So all of the extra equipment and supplies and munitions that they hadn't found yet. Yep. If they found. <laughs> Too damn safe. And I really want to point out that one because it's like you're both, it's like you're at the 101st and you're, you're a gunner. So I thought you'd appreciate that one. Um, God. in the end, make it, it actually, up as you go. Oh, yeah, that's the way <laughs> it is. It, that did, however, lead to long reaching implications for Normandy and for Market Garden of the implication of dedicated artillery, you know, airborne capable artillery units, and also not pushing your, your guns out after the, the, um, the gunners and things like that. But these guys, so they literally said they had 10 days of training. Well, or you like, blowing they, up your own ammo and stuff. That's another lesson learned. Don't yeah, do that. Yeah. Like don't use fire to clear clear an airfield. Like that just don't do that. Um learn as you go. Oh yeah. But because it, it, it they, they, they didn't have 10 days to prepare. It was proposed and then they were told within 10 days. Mm-hmm. So these guys were like, we need volunteers. Okay, yeah, cool. You're jumping out of planes. What? <laughs> I like Most it. these guys hadn't even seen a plane before. That's World War II, though. This is World War II, though. That is World War II. And, again, desperation that, again, we as Americans, I mean, we had Pearl Harbor, of course, but what we're talking about here is we as Americans cannot relate to. With Yes. I mean, we did have, they came at the, they didn't even come at the front door necessarily, right? It was like the way back door that's attached sort of to the house, but it's really not. Whereas here, I mean, it is, they are right at, the coast. I mean, they're almost oh, yeah. looking at you and they're coming for you. And you know what happens when they capture you. Mm. And so basically NASDAQ is a success. They use this airfield to bring in reinforcements and supplies, which allows you to capture Salma Island way. The problem is that at this point now is that in, in 43, at this point, the American troops are inexperienced and the Australian troops are exhausted. But MacArthur wants continual, you know, he wants continual advances. He wants, he wants to see blood. He wants to see stacks of Japanese men right. on the wall. But by this point, as I said before, the advance has started to outpace Australia's ability to support it. Um, so the Australian government, with the recommendation of MacArthur, decides that Australia's going to scale back its involvement in the war. It's, you know, unlike the American Britain, where we're just needing to raise as many divisions as we can, they cap the Australian military army at six divisions, which is the same amount that the US Marine Corps was during the war, as point of um, comparison. America had 61 army divisions in the Pacific. So Australia had six. Um, mm. The Royal Australian Air Force was capped at 53 squadrons. Though at this point, we were the fourth largest air force in the world. 
most of it was in England fighting the bomber offensive. But when you, know, you say had- when you say at this point, does that mean because another one was like was the German Air Force above and got knocked down? Yes. So okay. the Japanese and so it was it was it was the United States, Britain, things like Russia, no, I, I was like Germany, Australia, Germany, Japan, and then as the when the war ended, we were like the fourth again, like we were like the the fourth large air force behind United States, Britain, and Russia. Interesting. And there was like mm. Australia, and which is impressive considering again, population of seven million, yeah. fourth large air force. Right. Right. Uh, and the, the navy was basically strict that you no, you can't have any more warships aside from what you've already got. And the whole intent of this was basically to Australia would adopt more of a supporting stance in the war. We would resupply, we would build munitions, we would build transports, we would send that you know, to continue the advance to a lesser degree. The and then this you know suddenly some men would for production for industries supporting the war effort, which is great, except for the fact that again MacArthur didn't want to use the Australians to begin with. So once the um, again 19, 1943 Defence Act amendment allowed the militia to be sent wherever the same with the Australian Imperial Force. The war had shifted to the east, to the northwestern Pacific um, Pacific campaign. So mm-hmm. this is what is essentially now Indonesia, the Dutch East Indies, Morotai, Philippines. America, MacArthur has decided that the Royal Australian Air Force, the Royal Australian Navy will continue to support the United States' advance towards Philippines because he's freaking rage boner for recapturing that. And the Australian army was going to do nothing. So basically, so of all bar two of the Australian divisions were recalled to Australia to resupply and recruit. And while the Australian government offered number one corps to take assist, assist in the landings at Leitha Gulf and the, assist, assist the landings of the Northwest Pacific, MacArthur goes, no, I'm good. There are now enough Americans in this theatre where we can take the you know, leading, leading effort of the war, which has caused a lot of problems up to this point, because the overriding opinion of Americans in Australia is that they were here to save Australia, and they single-handedly did, completely ignoring the whole fact that Australia had been fighting the war since 1939 and were the only the only advances in that, you know, from 41 to 43 were done by Australian troops, with the exception of Guadalcanal. Um, it meant that the Australians were inactive. You know, like they, they, they lacked the resolve that the Americans did. They were... Now, granted, Australian discipline wasn't great. We tend to call their officers by their first names. We didn't salute people uh, when we weren't in battle. But the, they, they considered the Americans to be all glitz and glamour, but no substance. And the classic oversexed, overpaid, and over here. Problem is, there are over, mil- over a million Americans in Australia at this time. And, uh, you know, they look at it the, and they are known for caressing Australian women, which at the time was considered as incredibly offensive in australia due to the mentality at the time so caressing is public acts of affection yeah it doesn't sound good holding hands okay holding hands and kissing on the cheek and things like that you didn't do that in australia at the time australia also had very you know strict alcohol you know you could only drink you know bars would be open for an hour at a time and conservative society i didn't it was a very conservative society at the time just to, I'm just curious about that. Is that a religion thing or why is that? It why just came that? down to the culture. Um, Australia was, you know, it, it's a very, you know, all our, all our goods have to be imported. So a lot of our supplies, were, so we, austerity was still very much a thing in Australia. Um, during the Great Depression, Australia, because we exported grain and iron ore and things like that, which were all heavily tariffed during the Great Depression, Australia's economy was practically non-existent during you know in the build-up to the war so a lot of australians still had that mentality of 
we don't waste things frivolously. We don't, you know, you know, you know, the pubs are only open for, you know, two hours at a day on, you know, on, on an afternoon and never, and everything's closed on Sunday because we all go to church. Um, we're on reverses. The American, you know, PXs sold beer all the time and they had better rations and they had chocolate and they had nylons and they had perfumes and they had all this stuff. And while Australia was incredibly accommodating, like we had at the start of every movie, you know, every theater, we played the American national anthem. We had, we were putting in American sporting scores in the newspapers. We were selling hot dogs on the street and things like that. Like we changed our culture so much to be accommodating to the Americans. And then the American soldiers were just like, yeah, the Australians suck. Like Australian soldiers are pathetic. They don't know how to fight. And that caused a problem, namely the battle of Brisbane which was a two-day riot between Australian and American soldiers resulted in Australian Gunnar, Gunnar Webster being murdered by an American MP. Essentially mm. what happened was, is, and it all came down to a cultural shift. Like Australian MPs weren't, or the Provo, the Provo Corps, weren't a thing you wanted to do because Australians didn't like telling other Australians what to do. You're like, they didn't want to be the guy to be like, no, behave. That's, that, was an, that was an antithesis to Australian culture at the time. Uh, whereas the MPs were seen as thugs. The military police were seen as thugs. And shore patrol, doesn't, it didn't matter what uh, was written on your armband. If you were in American uniform, you were seen by most of the Australian military as a thug because you had a bully club and you were armed. Whereas the Australian mm-hmm. MP, and Australian provosts, they weren't armed. They're usually big, big bully guys too. Um, so what happened was is that an American soldier, uh, he left the PX. He was drunk. He started trying to accost an Australian woman. Um, you, you know, a bunch of Australian soldiers saw this and took issue with it. And they chased him off to the American PX in Brisbane. And as they were going through a crowd started approaching, ended up being like, some, like a couple of thousand Australians surrounded the PX demanding. They wanted him. They wanted him. It's like, this guy, he, he's molested one of our women. We want him. Yeah. We want him to face trial. And the MPs rock up with their billy clubs and their revolvers and then their rifles and stuff. And they cause and they start a brawl. The, the PX is destroyed. They get completely destroyed. The Australian, pro, the, the Australian police, like the, the regular police, and the, and the and the Provo rock up, and they're like, "No, we want him. No, bring him up. Bring him to us. We're not gonna we're not gonna stop the Australians from getting involved in this because they want him and just hand him over, and that's it." Sadly, one of the MP well, MPs has a Thompson, and the Australian gunner goes up to him and goes, "No, don't point that at people." You're going to cause problems. So he grabs the, grabs the barrel of the rifle and he, and he tries to push it out of the way. He's shot in the gut and killed. Mm. Uh, this is a big problem in the fact that uh, the new media don't report that an Australian has been killed. But everyone in Brisbane knows an Australian has been killed. Mm. The reason why they do this is they don't want the Japanese to hear there's dissension amongst the Australian and right. Americans. Um, so what happened was is, you know, so... This gunner is he's murdered, uh, and these Americans, you know, like they they basically just they withdraw back to their their, their camps. The Australians come back again, and they're like, "No, we still want the guy who molested our woman, you know, our our our, our, our Sheila. We we want him. We want him to face trial for what he's done. And now they also want we want the MP who killed our gunner. We want him too. And basically, what happens is is that uh, the Australian Provocor managed to gain control and the local police gain control of the situation and this is kind of tapers out but this ended up happening is so private grant was the mp who killed um 
the Fred Gunner Webster, and he was found, he was acquitted on terms of six of um, self-defense. And the only record of this in there was a message to the, ch- the chief sense. And I read, I read it directly from the thing is no cabling or broadcasting of details of tonight's Brisbane servicemen's riot background is for census only one Australian killed six wounded. So this is the only record of it. It was never mentioned yeah. in the papers, but it had a massive impact upon Australia's opinion, Australian and American relations during the war. Um, they, they, in battle, they respected each other, but by this point, outside of war, Australia separated. They were separated. Um, even though in the handbook for American service persons, 1942, uh, said you're not here to save Australia. They've been fighting since 1940, 1939. You're here to help them in an allied push towards victory. And that's you know what happens by this point though in the war, America's now taking the lead, and Australia's now taking a back seat. Which and has that, caused pro- yep. Well, that's an interesting thing too, because I understand the any any person, any country, there's pride associated with that of we we are capable. We want to be the ones to do this thing, whatever it might be. But at the end of the day, um, that decision for whatever why ever however it was made, there's Australians alive today because they didn't continue the fight through some of the places that, that the Americans now larger and a and little bit of combat experience took it right. It's um, to, it, to a degree, to a degree. And, and what I mean is like the, the Australian government and Australian people are very like politically offended that the Australians weren't no longer being in the forefront of the events. Yeah. So general blamey says, okay, we'll deal with the Southwest Pacific, Southeast Pacific. We'll go and we'll take these isolated pockets of Australians. I mean, I mentioned on a TikTok video that you did about this, that, you know, all the island hopping campaign, all those isolated Japanese forces, we're going to go and we're going to take, we're going to deal with them instead. And this also, also came out as during the attacks in the North Pacific, the Australian Air Force mutinied against the American commanders because they weren't being given any objectives. So like, you're, flank, you're on flank support. Okay, but there's no aircraft here. You're on flank support. You're going to fly out, make sure there's no Japanese aircraft. It's like, there's no, gen, no, no Where Japanese Where are they coming aircraft. from? Yeah. Where are they coming from? You know? So the, the and the, the the maritime mutiny was this, the entirety of the Australian Air Force basically refused to fly any further. And these weren't like raw recruits; these were combat veterans from North Africa, including like six of our aces. Said, "Nah, we're we're we're, we're if not going to be used, send us home." But the problem is, is that Blamey's decision to use these mopping up tactics resulted in about four and a half thousand Australians who probably didn't need to die because the gotcha. Japanese weren't going to be involved. Those islands were left for a reason. Yeah. But what did happen, I mean, and this is basically was nice, Australia from 1944, end of 43, up until 1945. So Australia's involvement in the war was mopping up operations in these islands. While they are largely criticized now and highly controversial, what they did do is they liberated a lot of prisoner of war camps. Hmm. And that's when the first inklings of what the horror, it's like the Americans, the Russians coming on to the concentration camps in, in, in Europe. Like yeah, they didn't have to go there, but when they went there, they swore and like that. So what the Australians, the same thing happened. Like they kept them, they um, went to Rabaul. They liberated Rabaul. They went to Sandakan, which was the side of the worst death mark, you know, death camp in the South Pacific. The only worst was Bataan. Uh, you know, 17, 1700 Australians were prisoner of war at, at, um, at Sandakan. Only three survived. Oh, gee whiz. And that's a, and that and that, uh, and that was with it was totals of thirty two thousand prisoners were at Sandakan. So of which seven seventeen hundred were Australian, only three total 
survived that. And they went and they talked about what happened and that resulted in, in thousands of Japanese being tried for war crimes. But when you're an Australian soldier and you're like, okay, yeah, you know, cool. The, the advance is going that way. Why are we going that way? They're very critical of the war at this point. Um, so once Philippines is, re- is rescued, battle tempo shifts to the tap capture of um, Japan. Australia decided they want to raise a whole new Australian division, the 10th division. It would serve as part of the Commonwealth Corps, which was raised exactly the same as an American Corps, and would be comprised exclusively of um, veteran Australian troops. So one, one division of the best of the best. Sure. And the Royal Australian Air Force would be recalled from Britain to support uh, the Japanese landings. All Australia's heavy bomber force was in England. It would come to Australia and it would help with the Japanese landings. Obviously, by the point that that unit was actually being recalled back to Australia, Hiroshima and Nagasaki happened and resulted in the Japanese, you know, Japanese surrender, which meant that what was left of the Australian forces were an occupation duty amongst the South Pacific. Um, Australia had administrative control of essentially every European colonial holding from the, basically from Indonesia downwards because they needed the Dutch and the British colonial officers to get to reorganize following the war in the Euro- sure. Europe to take over. And they also occupied something like 100,000 Japanese prisoners of war while they were being processed and tried for war crimes and sent back to Japan. And our war, our, our war didn't really finish in 45. In 1947, um, that's when the war crimes tribunals happened. But up until the start of the Korean War, three Australian divisions were on constant rotation in Japan as part of the British Commonwealth Occupation Force. In fact, mm. we comprised most of the um, force that was there. So the Royal Australian Air Force had one squadron, 77 squadron. We had the 53rd, 54th, and 55th uh, divisions uh, in, sorry, battalions in uh, Japan. And Australia based its Navy, you know, large what's left of its Navy in Japan as well. And these units, so 53, 54, 55 became... First, second, third divisions, Royal Australian Regiment, and 77th Squadron were the units that went to Korea as the first, uh, the first Allied response after America to North Korean aggression in Japan uh, in not in '51. Mm. So Australia basically went from Second World War straight into Korea with a little bit of leeway in between with yeah, um, seriously 77, 47, and actually Australia was like the first aside from America. So American fighters were coming from tokyo they were flying they were followed by australian fighters so australian bombers american bombers were being escorted by australian mustangs and australian warships were patrolling the they were patrolling the beaches around around the south of korea while the americans back in the north and uh first reg, first battalion australian regiment were the first non-american troops or non-south korean troops to actually go ashore in north korea south korea as well there we go uh so that, that continues all the way through but Australia's, involvement, but Australia's involvement in the war was greatly overshadowed by how it was reported, as that MacArthur was the great, you know, America file. You know, America did this solely on their own, and Australia helped a little bit. And in Europe, the same thing happened, you know. You look at any, any of the battles that Australians were involved in, it was, it was a British victory. It was an American victory. Who was involved? You know, 4,500 Australians. You know, 20,000 Australians. You know, six Australian warships. But it was an American victory. It was a British victory. And... By this point, 1947 also marks Australia finally ratifying the Statute of Westminster, which allows us to be influential for our own foreign affairs. And the first treaty we, we sign is with the United States. 
peaked, what essentially known as now the ANZUS Treaty. And despite that fact, they've been involved in every major conflict since 1887. Australia has never declared war on anybody, despite having the capacity to do this, but it's not been involved in every war up until Afghanistan. Hmm. So, I mean, it sounds like, I guess from my perspective, it sounds like we Americans, we brought you sex, drugs, and rock and roll. We um, modernized your force and finally cut the yoke off the king for you. That's what it sounds like. Because without us, you wouldn't have been able to do it. Is that how we wrap it up? We can wrap it up like that. I knew nothing. What you're talking about, I knew nothing because of exactly what you're talking about. I mean, of course, you know, Australians are in the war. Just like I know Canadians were in the war. But can I tell you anything that they actually did with specificity? No. No, I couldn't. so, no, it's, it's real fascinating. And especially to me, what's fascinating is, I think, the plight of you're, you're on the front line where they're coming for you and they already have came for you. And I think that would just be a, a terrible thing. It's what Ukrainians are going through right now. Um, not at the door, not knocking, but they're kicking, they're busting the door down. And um Obviously, there's the allies that we've had in the past and everything, how Australians have always been sort of a part of that, like you mentioned, but we just don't know. We don't know. And it was a lot to go over in an hour and a half or however long we've talked. Oh, yeah. Um, and I'm sure there's so much more, so much more we're missing. But to be able to really condense it down to that, you know, kudos. Yeah, yeah, Ross, I mean, that same thing happens, but like even like if you asked, I said, you know, at the side of the episode, you asked, you know, what would Australian recognize as the, of the war? A lot of people in Australia are even unaware that Australia served outside of the Pacific or like our involvement was just Kokoda um, because that's the way, you know, the education system works. They want things that they can met- metric. So it's Gallipoli and Kokoda, the two big tent poles of Australia's involvement sure. in military operations, not ign- ignoring everything else we did. Um, and that was like when, I, when Preston, you know, approached me about this, doing this, he's like, we want to do like Australia's involvement in the second world war. And I'm like, you know, that's six years of war, right? Like it's, it's not just like this, this little bit, it's, it's the whole, and you know, there's like all these other things that Australia's done. So being able to meld this down to just the Pacific campaign. And again, I know this is an audio podcast, but like, this is Australia's involvement in the Pacific yeah. campaign. You know, there's like, you know, it's a massive fold of like, you know, over, you know, a hundred pages of you know, everything that Australia did. Um, and I, I, I know, there's probably a whole lot of stuff that I actually, you know, whoop, ah, whole lot of stuff I actually left out, but that wasn't what this was for. This was, you know, this is welcome to Australia, Australia Absolutely, in the Pacific yeah. 101. And, uh, and thanks for doing that, Ross. That was, uh, I know we talked about it. You were nervous about getting six years into an hour, hour and a half. And I think it was awesome, man. I learned a ton. Um, and if anybody's listening to this and wants to hear more about some of these Australian war stories, the place to go is Ross's podcast. So it's called I Was Only Doing My Job, Spotify, Apple, anywhere else? Uh, it's on Google. It's on Stitcher. It's on everything that uh, War Stories is on. There we go. Uh, I Was Only Doing My Job is also on. Um, like Preston, I also do Australian history podcast uh, TikToks. Uh, you can find me at, at Doc Winters. And yeah, everywhere, you know, I'm. it's on everything. And I Every share platform. a lot of information through. Yeah. And you usually find me in Preston's comments, you know, like, it's like, well, yeah, Australia also, like, this is also what happened here. And this is what happened here. <laughs> well, we'll it's a great all... title for your podcast. It is. I know yeah. I just have to say that I really like that. We'll well, it came from, of, uh... like, the... yeah. 
it came from like the original whole title was I'm not a hero. I was only doing my job, but I, you can't, that's too long for a title, but it's one of those things you ever ask a veteran, you know, it was, he was like, what did you do in the war? You know, what, what, what did you do? And it's like, I was only doing my job. You know, um, I wasn't there to, you know, and the people I'm talking about though, are, you know, men and women who did extraordinary things, but you ever actually asked them what they did. I mean, the first three that I did, um, Vivian Bullwinkle, Leslie Bull Allen and John Hines, um, you ever ask them what they did, they didn't, they either deflected or they just outright said, no, the hero was the one who died. I'm the one who, I was the lucky one who came home. And that's, that was pretty much what it was, was, it was like, what, what did these people, you know, that you see like these, you know, um, uh, Hacksaw, Hacksaw Ridge, you know, like Dale mm-hmm. die. And like, what else did he do? And like, like, like what else did, you know, um, I'm, I'm blanking at the moment. Uh, you know, what else did these, the, you know, the, the, this Medal of Honor recipient, what else did he do during the war? You know, what, like, you know, this guy, you know, who single-handedly held the line, what was the war like after he, after that point? And that's what, you know, the, the podcast has been about, has been, um, you know, someone invents like the drip rifle, you know, in, 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 responsible for saving thousands of Australians' lives on Gallipoli. But what else did the guy do? Sure. And then, you know, you ask him, you ask him, say, oh, I was just doing my job. I love it, man. I love that you're keeping those stories alive. Keep it up and yeah. we'll, uh, we'll link all of your stuff in the show notes here. So it'll be on YouTube and Spotify and Apple and all those, but, um, yeah, Ross again, thank you so much for doing this man. And, uh, looking forward to talking again soon. All right. All right, gents. See ya. Catch you Ross. Once again, I'd like to thank Preston and Sayer for having me on their podcast to talk about a topic that I'm rather passionate about. And to find more of their content, I'll link to their YouTube, Spotify, and Apple podcast pages in the show notes as well as Preston's TikTok, who, like myself, does educational history videos on that platform. As always, it's an honor and a privilege to talk about Australia's experience in war on other platforms, and I look forward to doing so again. Thanks for listening to the I Was Only Doing My Job podcast, a Doc Network production. This episode was written, produced, and audio engineered by me, Russ Manuel, with additional research done by Laurie Favell. I'd really appreciate it and it would help out the show if you took some time to share this with a friend or leave a review on Spotify or Google Podcasts or iTunes or anywhere that you listen to podcasts as it really helps other people find the show. If you want to know more about today's episode with photos, show notes and transcripts, head to www.thedocnetwork.net and follow the show on IWODMJ on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. Don't worry, there's a link in the show notes. If you want to follow me for history-related hijinks and other nerdery, you can follow me on practically everything at Doc Winters. Once again, thanks for listening and catch you next time. Bye.